First year of the 21st century, a single listener was being watched from the timeless void of an unnamed podcast. That single listener could not have dreamed they were being scrutinised like an accountant studies a poorly prepared tax return, looking for a way out of an audit. Few of us even considered the possibility of life beyond this podcast. And yet, against all reason, minds immeasurably inferior to theirs regarded the listener with envious eyes. And slowly and surely, they drew their plans to ensnare them. Now that's out of the way. Welcome, listener. You are listening to our new podcast series, The Podcast With No Name. Tonight, we have assembled a merry little band of unique individuals to delve into what has been described as a dynasty of pseudo-historical narratives (laughs) hidden below a thin veneer of satire, mildly accurate and possibly a little offensive. I do, of course, refer to the series, which was born from the ideas of Rowan Atkinson, Richard Curtis, and a subsequent chance encounter with Ben Elton, the Black Adder. I will now hand over to our own loyal royal, Princess. Thank you very much, Bargie. I'd like to say good evening to Leanne and Bargie. And Eddie is here, but he's pretending not to be. This evening, I'd like to pay homage to Black Adder. It is... One of my favourite sitcoms. Being a history buff myself, I just love what they did with history and how they turned it into comedy. With Blackadder, there were four main series of six episodes each playing throughout the 1980s. There have been numerous specials, comedy festivals. They've sometimes done a Blackadder special for. I will be looking tonight at the first three series of Blackadder. Because there is just so much in it, I'm only going to look at one episode from each series and just have a look at the historical aspects of that and see what the writers and the actors did with it to make it funny. Blackadder was written by Richard Curtis. He had help in the first series from Rowan Atkinson. The second series, Richard Curtis's co-writer was Ben Elton. Ben Elton's uncle is Geoffrey Elton, who is an eminent Tudor and early modern historian. Ben Elton stayed on with Richard Curtis to write for all the main series of Blackadder. The producer of Blackadder was John Lloyd. He was the producer throughout most of the production. Most of the actors were from Oxford, Cambridge. There were some from the University of Manchester. They all knew each other. They had all been around the comedy traps for years together. John Lloyd had been involved in, I'm sorry, I hadn't haven't a clue. He was also involved in Red Dwarf. The composer of the Blackadder theme, which was updated and tweaked every series so it was relevant for the historical period, was Howard Goodall, who also wrote the Red Dwarf theme. The actors, oh my goodness, you've got Rowan Atkinson, you've got Tony Robinson, Stephen Fry, you've got Hugh Laurie, you've got Miranda Richardson, Tim McInerney. It is a who's who of baby boomer British comedians and they are all in their own way brilliant. Then you had special appearances from 
Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson. And if someone asked me my favourite Blackadder character for the whole series, it has to be Flashheart. He only appears twice in the whole four series and he is brilliant. Would anybody try and convince me otherwise? No. No, I think, I think you're spot on there. <laughs> Bargy would particularly love Flashheart as his flying ace in the fourth series, no doubt, but I love Elizabeth and Flashheart. I just love him. Things that the series nailed, costumes. They absolutely nailed the costumes for each of the four series. The first series, especially with the Infanta episode, they showed the costumes for the Spanish cohort that came with the Infanta to marry Blackadder. Their costumes were a little bit different from the English ones, which is what it was in the day. In the second series, they had Queenie's costumes suitably over-the-top fancy. The nobles' clothes in each of the series were a little bit less fancy. The clothes were brilliant. Just on that, Princess, with, with the costuming, do you think perhaps that they did go a little bit over the top with the costuming for the main characters, given that they didn't want to be overpowered by the, the extras, if you like, within the, the production? So the actual lower-class characters were somewhat subdued or more subdued through their clothing choices i'll break it down series by series series one it is a bit hard to know because of the time distance between when series one was set and now the nobles would have had better quality dyes than they would have had richer colors partly because they could they could afford them and partly because it was a show of status the dog's bodies, as Baldrick was generally a dog's body, they always were in lesser clothes. They were always in more subdued colours. They were meant to be invisible around the castles and the palaces and things. Second series, the Queen was just resplendent in what she wore. Blackadder was still splendid, but less so, which is what happened with nobles. And it went down through the classes of people in the era. The third series... The Prince Regent, Prince George, was over the top and Prince George himself, the actual regent, was over the top with his clothes. He loved dressing up. He loved sparkles. He loved fancy stuff. And it was common for servants such as butlers and things to wear cast-offs. Clothes were expensive. You didn't just toss them out when you wanted new ones or they wore out. You passed them down and that happened for centuries. And with Elizabeth's costumes, they would have had a lot of the jewels taken off them and she would have passed them over to her ladies-in-waiting. Now, just on that, if I can sort of interrupt you a little bit there, Princess, I've been wanting to say that all night. One thing that I found, because I'm not particularly a big fan of the first series, and I tend to agree with some of the interviews that Rowan Atkinson done in relation to the first series, where he said that the comedy just didn't quite hit the mark particularly in that first series. But for me, if you look at the first series and the third series, first series seems, lighting-wise, always very dark. Whereas you look at the Prince Regent series, the third series, everything is very bright. I think there's only about two or three scenes that I can recall that are anything other than in full light. And one of those scenes is where Blackadder's writing the dictionary beside the fire. But all of the other scenes in that series seem to be a lot lighter in their application rather than the first series. 
if you're talking just pure lighting, third series in particular, George IV was really big into design and architecture and he loved fancy. So he was big on lights. He was big on wallpaper and gilt and making things. He was very big in design. Regent's Park, there's a place down at Brighton that he's behind the design of. He loved design. He loved light. He loved fancy. That's what he loved. He had a really good eye for it. The first series was filmed at Alnwick Castle. It was dark. It was a medieval castle they filmed it in and the sets were to match the castle. I think they nailed the sets in the first series. They had the rushes on the floor. They had it dark. They had it cold. They had it dank. That's what it was like. Castles were drafty, cold and dark. I think they nailed it. And I also think they nailed the sets on the second series as well. The castle, they had people huddling around near the windows when they went to Queenie. They used the natural light. Blackadder's house, he had the whitewashed walls to reflect light. His house wasn't as fancy as a palace because he was just a noble and he was a noble that needed her patronage, that needed Queenie's favour. I think they nailed it. I think also not only is it dark, but after season one, didn't they nearly, like the BBC nearly cancelled the whole thing because it was just, it was filmed outside. Obviously that costs a lot more money. So being in a studio for the the rest of the seasons made it a lot easier to control lighting and contain the scenes as opposed to it sort of roaming around the countryside. Yes, absolutely they did. They filmed Series 1 on location. They put Rowan Atkinson through horse riding lessons with a Swedish Olympian equestrian. And I'd like to do that. Well, who wouldn't? <laughs> and then later on they discovered that someone at a distance is just as funny falling off a horse as Rowan Atkinson is. They really didn't need to have him doing that. They were terribly overblown with some of the sets and things in the first series. Yeah, well, I think it cost them just over a million pounds for the six episodes. Which is a lot of money for nearly 40 years ago. Oh, Absolutely. That's yeah. huge amounts of money. Yeah, they had to have a rethink of how they were going to do Blackadder, not only what they were going to cover in it. And there was a gap of, what, two years, three years between the filming of Series 1 and Series 2, and they had to really change everything around for the BBC to pick up the second series. Yeah, and you wonder whether, because obviously Rowan Atkinson wrote the first series and, yeah, you know, it doesn't quite hit the mark, as you said, and Ben Elton had just come off the back of The Young Ones, which was huge success for BBC, and then they started doing Blackadder. So I wonder whether... Ben Elton was then picked up to do the writing and that's where the partnership, Richard Curtis mm. and uh, Ben Elton came. Yeah, well, from what I've read and through different things that I've listened to, like the 20th anniversary of Blackadder, BBC Radio did an interview with them all and the cost of the first series was one of the topics that they covered. And that was, I think, at the time, BBC One. They were a little bit reluctant to sign off on having a second series, which is why you've got that big gap of between two and three years between the first and the second series. And there's also the situation where Rowan Atkinson himself said, well, I want to be the actor in this. I don't necessarily want to write everything in there. Mm. From all accounts, it was only due to a, a chance meeting between Richard Curtis and Ben Elton at the time that, as you say, Ben had just come out from The Young Ones and a few other things that he was doing and he had a bit of spare time and 
both he and Richard Curtis uh, agreed that they'd work on it, provided that it was a studio-only production. To try and keep those costs down, they could then get it across the line with management of BBC at the time and probably give it a bit of a tweak. And then that's when you see that huge transformation between Series 1 and Series 2 of the Blackadder character itself, mm. where he's gone from a pretty much a gormless idiot into quite a, a cunning sycophant. I don't quite know how that bodes for our descendants, whether they're going to see us as gormless twits or whether we'll be seen as intelligent beings. Consistently throughout history, humans have been really good at two things. The first one is killing each other and the second one is being wrong. We yes. do it. We do both of them really well all the time. Yes. Let's get on to each of the series and the way I'm going to talk about each series is to discuss one episode which I think is an exemplar for the other episodes. In this first series, it was really hard to choose because there's the witch smell of Persuivant, which is just great. There's when Blackadder gets made the Archbishop of Canterbury and you can discuss the way the church operated in that time. My second choice was the Spanish Infanta when Blackadder's arranged to be married and Jim Broadbent comes as the interpreter and, oh, it's just gold when he's interpreting for the Infanta when she's trying to get all amorous and he's going, oh, my love, I love you and things like that. However, I've chosen to talk about the first episode, which is the foretelling. It sets up the Blackadder tale. It starts on the eve of the Battle of Bosworth in 1485. It covers Richard III losing his life and this is where they get creative. Instead of Henry Tudor acceding to the throne at the end of the battle because he's knocked off Richard III, Richard III's nephew, who was one of the princes in the tower, isn't dead and he becomes king. He becomes King Richard IV. And it's gold. They rip off Shakespeare mercilessly. The casting is brilliant. We've got Rowan Atkinson, of course, as Blackadder. We've got Tony Robinson as Baldrick. We've got Tim McInerney there as Lord Percy, incidentally. The Percys really are the Dukes of Northumberland, and they still are, and they were known as the Kings of the North. Richard III is played by the legendary Peter Cook, and he just brought the right gravitas to the role. And Richard IV, his nephew, is played by Brian Blessed. And who doesn't love Brian Blessed? So they start at the banquet on the night before the battle. And one thing I thought of when I watched it this morning was, how many battles do you have now where you think, oh, we're going to go and fight tomorrow, so tonight we'll have a big party ahead of it and just pray and give thanks and party on before the battle. Anyway, during the banquet, the first of the big Shakespeare rip-offs happens where Richard III, ripping off Richard III, the play, says, Now is the summer of our sweet content. May overcast winter by these Tudor clouds. And I, that I am not shaped for black-faced war, I that am rudely cast and want true majesty and forced to fight to set sweet England free. It goes on, but it is an absolute rip-off of Shakespeare and I love it. Later on, at the battle, they rewrite Shakespeare, and this is from Henry V, Act 3, Scene 1, where Richard III yells out, Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, consign their parts most private to a Rutland tree, which is a reference to the hanging, drawing and quartering that would happen if people were captured. 
Richard III also says, and gentlemen in London still abed shall thank themselves a curse they were not here and hold their manhood cheap while others speak of those who fought with us on Ralph the Liar's Day, which is, again, a rip-off of Shakespeare, another scene in Henry V. Blackadder at this stage, he's a bit of a gormless twit, so he sleeps in, he misses the battle, he gets there late, sees people dead and goes, I don't want to be part of that. So he decides to have a whiz and then go home. Richard III lost his horse in the battle that died under him. He's looking for a new horse, sees Blackadder's horse, takes it. Blackadder says, no one steals my horse and beheads him. And that's how Richard IV ends up being Richard IV. Then Blackadder, back at the castle, is terribly beset with guilt about it, keeps seeing Richard's ghost. Again, very Shakespearean. Shakespeare loved a ghost. Those who know Blackbeth will know that. And Hamlet. Blackadder then turns himself into Blackadder because he is now Edmund, the Duke of Edinburgh. He is now the son of a king, which they didn't think that would be the case. This episode absolutely rips off Shakespeare. This episode flies very close to actual history. The Battle of Bosworth really happened. Richard really was unhorsed. Richard really did die at the battle. And as many people know, his skeleton was found when they were digging up a Leicester car park in 2012. <laughs> Royals actually provided DNA so they could prove that it was Richard III. And he It's crazy, isn't it? I know. And they also discovered that he didn't have a hunchback, but he did have very bad scoliosis. And it was so yeah. bad that his back was so bent that he would have looked like a hunchback. And it's mm. a shame this mm. is an audio medium because I just demonstrated it. <laughs> So they're setting themselves up in this episode. It is a little bit stilted at first. It gets going, but it sets up the series. It sets up the whole Blackadder story. And the clever use of Shakespeare, I applaud. The casting, I applaud. Whilst it's not Blackadder's strongest outing, I applaud it because you can see where they're going. That's why I like this episode. Your thoughts, peoples? I just think, you know, in comparison to the others, it's like it's too clever for me. <laughs> all the references and all the, it's not as slapstick as the others where they're joking about, you know, turnips in the ch- shape of thingies. It's it's a bit too romantic in, in its script. And even though it's, you know, Rowan Atkinson's face is just hilarious and the bowl haircut is amazing, but it doesn't resonate as much as the other sort of slapstick mm-hmm. series. What about you, Bargie? What do you think of this episode? Oh, look, for me, the entire first series, so I think they were trying to find their way on where that line was going to be drawn. The other thing, too, is it's quite interesting that they picked that particular period because in mainstream sort of media, if you like, the 15th century isn't terribly well represented as opposed to from the 16th century onwards. I just feel that they they use this as a bit of a, let's dip our toe in and see if we can pull it off. They had a huge budget that they spent quite quickly. And yes, they nailed everything. But for me, it just seemed a little bit forced in points, particularly in those early episodes. What impresses me is that they know the history so well. This is the end of the Wars of the Roses. The Battle of Bosworth is the last really big battle, but not the last battle of the Wars of the Roses, where Henry Tudor, he's an obscure relative, wins the day, becomes king, and the Yorks are defeated from there on. And what Henry Tudor actually ended up doing was marrying Elizabeth of York and he united the houses that way. And that's why the Tudor Rose is a combination of the York and the Lancaster Rose. 
I think they're very clever for choosing this time because the written record is good, but it can be a bit dodgy. There were so many potential claimants for the throne. So writing in Blackadder and Richard IV is easily done. And so many people know the story of the princes in the tower, know that Richard III imprisoned Edward IV's two sons. His claim to the throne would be stronger. He did this after Edward IV died because the two princes who were young teenagers at the time, about 13, were under the influence of their mum's family. Edward IV had been getting Richard III when he was still the Duke of somewhere. Edward IV was getting him to do lots of administrative work, lots of battles, lots of work, and he was really good at it and the people really liked him. I think it was very clever that they had kind Uncle Richard because many people do think he actually was, for a king of his time, kind, as kind as he was going to be. This concludes part one of our exploration of Blackadder series one to three. The princess will be back next week with part two. Have a nice day.